Hey, welcome to The Look Back, my pandemic podcast, or hopefully post-pandemic podcast, broadcasting here from the basement of Newman Media Studios. My name is Keith Newman, and I'm the host of The Look Back. And this is a place where we have some fun conversations with old friends, a few newsmakers, and some rule breakers, all in the name of sharing insights and experiences, along with a little bit of levity and fun. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you're so inclined, or perhaps even open to some bribery, you'll share this podcast with some friends who might also enjoy it. Let's go on to the show. What a pleasure to have you. Welcome to The Look Back. Thank you. We're, we'll spend some time looking forward as well. Well, you can't do one without the other, in my view. <laughs> or, or maybe we don't do enough of looking back. You know, uh, I think, I think I, you know, I'm a great buff of history. And, um, you know, from my viewpoint, uh, you know, the current, a lot of the current political situation, people don't understand, nor have they ever read any history. <laughs> I think you were beyond to something and you kind of jumped my thread. You know, I don't prepare a lot of questions for my interviews. My background in journalism always taught me to be prepared and think about, um, you know, the story before it is written and, and following certain rules, but I'm breaking them all now in this new uh, uh, COVID podcast that I'm doing. Uh, it's such a great uh, pleasure to have you on. Your your history, uh, is uh, your background, all the things you've accomplished, just amazing, just fantastic. Um, and I also have heard some of your recent interviews and read some of your works. It just, um, I think it's as, as, as um, relevant today um, although we have new language uh, to describe a lot of the things you talk about from a marketing standpoint and a business standpoint and a theory standpoint. Um, it's just fantastic. You, you mentioned politics and, you know, that's kind of an interesting place to start, although I don't want to dwell on it, but isn't it interesting to think about how technology has influenced the world of politics where, where you started in, the semiconductor industry with uh, a lot of the chip companies and Intel, um, and then obviously the work with Apple at, and and your amazing firm. Um, amazing to think how much of an impact it has had on uh, the political world we live in now. Yeah, I you know I, I think about that. I feel a little guilty, but uh, <laughs> looking back, um, you know when. Uh, the, the big change was two big changes, I think, that happened in the 80s was one uh, uh, was certainly the microprocessor. The microprocessor was really a miniature computer. It performed all the functions of logic and of, uh, you know, gathering memory of then redistributing information after processing it. And so it was able to go into everything from the door handle of your car to a microwave oven to a refrigerator, you know, to a computer, and uh, and because there are all those functions that enable you to have something that's you know that thick you carry around with you, uh, so it had a huge impact, uh, and then that that really distributed, if you will, <clears throat> uh, uh, contact points, so that uh, they were cheaper. Uh, and you could get, I mean, you know, the Apple's sometimes expensive, but you can get cheaper models, much cheaper models, uh, you know, in, in all parts of the world today. 
Right. Uh, the other thing that happened was the internet. And the internet uh, was basically when the early days was free. You just had not know how to get onto it and had a modem. But as that changed, um, you know, you, you, you we're up to over two or three billion people now on the internet worldwide. And when you have that many people, think of them, they're all broadcasters. They're not receiving information only, they're broadcasting. So that's a closed loop. So, you know, you're gonna get a lot of conflict because not everybody agrees with whatever they're hearing or seeing. And so you get this constant sort of uh, chaotic fight that goes on among people, not really knowing who they're talking to. Um, you know, there's a cartoon of two dogs talking to each other and one's on the internet. And one says, you know, they never know that I'm a dog on the internet. So, you know, it's... Um, so we just, just to, turn the, to turn the table a little bit, how does a marketing we, a genius like yourself take something like that as opposed to talking to traditional media that we grew up talking with, TV, radio, newspaper, you know, the B2B media that you, that you understood to something like this that just has everybody's a broadcaster, everybody has a voice. And how do you leverage that for a, for a company or a client? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things um, you can do. First of all, <clears throat> most of what I did was business to business. So you have, for example, um, uh, you know, uh, talking with your customers, you, you knew who your customers were, and you had uh, the ability, for example, logistics enables you to track a product to your customers. So you know when it's coming, they tell you in advance, all that sort of, they know information about you, you know information about them. And in that exchange, the company learns and the customer learns. And so it's a, it's a closed loop learning process. And when, when you open it up to 2 billion people uh, without any regulation, I mean, you know, you had to get a, a license to drive a car. You had to get a license to broadcast on a radio or a TV network. You don't have to get a license to do any of this. So uh, what happened, of course, was that the, the, the regulation of the internet was, uh, was left open. And that's an experience that I think we have to respond to. Um, and uh, I think that's a lot of what the current political issue is about, because it's about the, 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 the complete negativity that goes on. I, I call it matter and antimatter. In yeah. fact, I, I gave a talk in the mid, in actually the early 90s on that subject, matter and antimatter, and it was about the internet. And, uh, and I had a slide that had two people on a tug of war and one was matter and one was anti and anti-matter wins. So as long as you know, bad stories yeah. seem to catch people's eye and ear, but um, good stories, you know, you don't see anything anymore that you kind of say, oh boy, boy, that's a really good story. Have you thought about ways you get the genie back in the bottle here and uh, uh, regulate this in a more constructive, productive way? I think I think it has to be, yeah. I, I I do think that there has to be regulation. There mm -hmm. has to be um, some government involvement there. Uh, unfortunately, for the last ten or twenty years, I think um, our governments and, and um, have been. Uh, and I, I'm I'm very biased here, but I think it's been mostly the GOP uh, are have become anti-science and anti-tech. I mean, the, the, the anti-vaccine and mask is anti-science. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but we, when we were kids and we got polio vaccines, you lined up and you didn't, my parents didn't say anything. You got your shot and you, you went, you know, you shut up. Um, uh, and uh, measles the same way. And when you go into, when you go into a, uh, a nursery ward and the doctor's delivering a baby, uh, everybody has masks on. I mean, so, you know, this, this we know for actually hundreds of years yeah, and um, and it's and it's being denied, and uh, and it's and it's killing people, but there's nobody really. I don't think we have anybody in looking at this longer term, bigger picture of what do the, what are the catastrophic out, outcomes of these things. Yeah, and the counterbalance, of course, is do we really trust our current political leaders to uh, guide us and direct us uh, into the proper checks and balances that are probably things that you're you're recommending or you would be recommending or I would be um, supportive of. Yeah, I think they, I think they should have and, and they have pointed at times a, a science director, but you don't hear about them. You yeah. don't hear about the credibility of them. Right. You don't hear about the fact that maybe they have, you know, 50 years of experience doing this, right. whereas people have sort of thrown experience and understanding and and logic out the window. Yeah, um, I have a, I have another slide which is, um, I just pulled it out for somebody yesterday, but basically it was. Uh, I'll just show it to you, but it's real quick, and then I'll tell you what it says. Can you see it? Yeah, you'd have to read it. Yeah, okay, so what it does is it sets on and it says, these are, these are campaign speeches. Mm -hmm. So the first one they show is in 1988, and they, and a a uh, a news clip from uh, that speech was 43 seconds. And over the years, that's come down to about three seconds. So in 1990, it was 8.6 seconds. And it just continues, the curve goes down. The news media doesn't give people time to actually talk. And uh, I don't know, you and I probably remember, um, uh, you know, Fortune magazine used to do these in depth articles, right? 20 pages on, on a company or on a business or on the economy or on whatever, because I saved them. I've yeah. saved them. I got the economist inserts going yeah. back to the 70s. And, and, and you get a thorough understanding and in-depth understanding. And today, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a soundbite. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and that has to do, I think, with people, uh, you know, my book, Real Time, I mentioned this, that people are becoming trained to want something instantly. They don't, I mean, are, you get, I don't know, you get on the internet you're, or you get on your TV and you're clicking every station. Um, FedEx is delivering overnight. Amazon is, is, is like the trucks waiting at the end of our street to deliver it, you know? And, um, and so these things are, we're constantly hitting, we want it now, we want it now, we want it now. And I think people who feel either deprived or rejected for whatever reason, I think they want solutions now, yeah. not next week, not next year, not two years from now. And the problem with politics is that, and, and democracy, is that democracy requires a um, process that, is in, that has to be encumbered. Otherwise, it's driven through and you might get to the wrong end. And um, uh, a friend of mine who wrote a paper, he was in uh, Michigan's... Uh, public policy school back in the, in the 19, in 1970. 
And he wrote a paper, him and another professor there, I think his name was Brennan, uh, on uh, the fact that uh, democracy is going to become increasingly hard to, 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 to control over a variety and disparity of populations. And the diversity of society itself creates this havoc. And, um, and I think that people are both, you know, what are they yearning for when they, we say go back? Ask them what year today. I mean, we've been going through this, you know, it's, I mean, my wife grew up in a really tough area of Pittsburgh. She, I mean, literally it would have been called the slums and those sorts of things. She got out, got, got her master's degree, got college. But, you know, they just look at that one experience and say, you know, that's it. And I don't think they can go back and, and say, look, we are progressing slowly because if we went fast, it'd be much more catastrophic. And it would be. That's funny. I'm starting to talk more politics with uh, the dean of marketing, uh, the technology industry, but it's fun. I did read the New York Times piece on can we control and maintain our democracy? Um, lots of chatter about has a democracy failed us. Um, but then you say, well, okay, if you take that side, pick a better example of a of a political organizing uh, system. And um, anyways, it's uh, it's um, it's 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 to be well, seen. Yeah, I I I certainly I certainly believe that if 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 people were in government looking at some of these long term issues, in fact, I have. You can see the books I have, but you also I have file drawers here. I got twice as much downstairs in my, in my den, and uh, uh, I have I have folders on democracy and on political culture, and they go back to the 1960s. And I've been saving stuff since then. And I put, start reading that, and you start saying, you know, we if someone would have looked at this stuff years ago, they could have seen and read about from knowledgeable people. Yeah. Uh, about how this was going to affect us. Well, I think my friend Roger McNamee, who was on a podcast with me a few months ago, and he wrote the book Zucked. Uh, I think he tried oh, I to know Roger very well. I know you. Yeah, I, had I a know Roger him. well. He, he tried to jump in front of the train. Um, it didn't run him over uh, and he's still holding on. But I think he's making a lot of similar points in the sense that we got to get in front of this sooner because later could be too dangerous. Later could be. Yeah, Roger's a terrific guy. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Roger's a good I had a really great talk with him. My 30 minute interview went uh, about three hours. A lot of it was recorded, but uh, it was a fantastic chat. And I don't mean to keep you that long. Let's let's do a tab of looking back just because. Did he play any of his music for you? Uh, we talked about it, but I, I actually asked him to uh, take me out with a couple of tunes, but he declined at the time. I don't remember why, but um, yeah, he's a wonderful guest and I wish him a ton of success. And I think it's interesting. I mean, what in, in the line of people you consulted, you know, the Steve Jobs, of course, the Intel executives like Noyce and Grove, I mean, amazing characters. What about Zuckerberg? Where does he fit? If like, where would be your counsel if he was, if you were in the the chair, so to speak? Uh, how would you direct him doing what he's doing? He's a very thoughtful person. He's intelligent as all heck. Built an amazing company that's tremendously successful. But that foundation 
has has shown some cracks and there's some um, uh, some pain that's been caused from it. Well, I think that first of all, I, I should point out that I don't consider uh, Facebook a technology company. I, th I consider them somebody who uses the technology. They didn't create software. They didn't create chips. They didn't create the, the broadcast medium. It's, it was all there. So they essentially were able to take what was there at the time. And, and, and in effect, don't forget how he started. It was, it was a dating service at Harvard, right? Or it was a, so, I mean, the, the, it was kind of auspicious beginnings. Yeah. Uh, and, and even I more auspicious, that, uh, you're, you're leaving out the fact it was borrowed from some, uh, quote, partners of his and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I, I, I left Facebook long ago. I, I just, just on a pure ethical reasons, I just don't watch it anymore. Um, uh, and uh, I think that uh, that's where you need do new. I mean, this is, this is television. This is entertainment television. It's not, it's it may, the entertainment. We may not like it, but it's entertainment. And it stretches from violence to porn to, to some really good stuff. But that's television. And I think it needs to have, you know, some regulation. And Roger's been on this for a long time and, it, and, uh, and has talked to Zuckerberg, but hasn't been able to. If, if Roger can't get through to somebody, um, then I'm certainly not going to be able to do it. But uh, I, you know, if I, I ran into some, some, kind of moral legal issues with clients. And as soon as I did, I would resign them. I mean, I, you know, so um, I'm surprised that the people, the people have to support him. And it's the people who support him who you also have to fault. Yeah. You're referring, I guess, indirectly to the board of directors, executive team. Kind yes. of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go back to Intel days. That's such a fascinating company and somehow it's gotten, um, a little bit under the radar even today, but uh, they're still doing magical things, I'm sure, down in Santa Clara and everywhere. But um, take me back to your early days at Intel, Regis. What what sticks out as your some of your favorite memories with that company and the, the mercurial personalities there and the innovative uh, culture at the time? Yeah, uh, I think that the culture at the time, when it was Bob Noyce that actually uh, uh, hired us. And, um, and, and uh, I gave him a presentation in a restaurant down in San Jose. And, uh, and uh, the next day, you know, uh, the VP of marketing called me and said, uh, we got to And this was in 1971. By the way, I know, so, uh, I know Ed Gelbach's son, Tom, quite well. <laughs> oh, you do? Yeah. A small world story That's there. Good. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, and, uh, and I had worked for a little company called General Microelectronics in 1965. It was a spin out of Fairchild also. All the people there were working uh, new uh, noise because everybody here was spun out, spun out of Fairchild. So almost, I had, I had nine different semiconductor clients to begin with and they were all spin outs of Fairchild. So uh, once, and, and because I worked at National and I worked at this company called GME, I knew the process and it, they were small companies. So you could learn by just asking questions of the engineers that did it. Yeah. But not only that, you could see it. You could see the, the 
you know, uh, I have a I have a transistor. Uh, I think it's downstairs, but it's, I have one single transistor. It's about the size of a head of a pin. And now this watch has 15 billion transistors in it. So think about the evolution. What it's put in, in the in the in the, the technology that it takes to miniaturize things and electronics has to be in place, and it has to be. So it's not just Intel coming out with it. It's their suppliers changing a whole network of support structures that enables you to do the kind of what they used to do is photolithography. Now they do it with lasers. Uh, they can put uh, multi-sided chips together uh, to, to make you know three, four cores in a, in a computer. And, and so, you know, so much of that you see in the beginning. Noyce used to say it was easy to for anyone as a kid to uh, to understand the car because he could open up the hood and he could see the piston working. He could see where everything had it, the cooling system, the, the spark plugs. You could take it apart. You could see what would have. You can't open any of these things and look at them and see what they are. Yeah. And so uh, the first microprocessor um, was uh, of 4004. And um, that uh, they, they really didn't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, they were, some people were just selling it as a chip. Um, you mean they didn't have an application? They hadn't figured it out. It took about two years, two years for them to figure out that it's had other applications. I didn't get that. Could you try again? <laughs> Something's coming back at me here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sorry. I'm still not sure about hold that. Hold on one second. I got to talk about technology interrupting. <laughs> Sorry. I'm still not sure about there we go. Sorry, I must have hit something. I got I got whoever was speaking at me saying yeah. they were listening in on us. They're out there. It's the Russians. <laughs> They're out there. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so, so I I think Noise probably you know uh, knew that I had worked on a technology called MOS technology, which was de being developed at GME. They were never really successful because they. The process wasn't mature enough. They were able to get a number of, of chips. They even actually made a calculator out of it. But you could see them growing the ingots, cutting the ingots, masking, photographing this mass against the, the uh, silicon, dicing the wafer, everything in one long building. You could see that. And you could go from thing, you know, from station to station. And 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 you, the people, there wasn't that many people. It's probably a $10 million company. And you could ask. So what are you doing? Why are you doing that? What's happening here? And so, um, you know, having done that, that I had a little understanding of what business, you know, they were talking about. Uh, uh, and the first one was the, the microprocessor. I have, I, you may have read, I, I've kept notebooks since 1970. Um, they're handwritten. And um, I have a couple pages that I, I really hang on to. One is the my microprocessor strategy meetings. And the very first one was, I forget the date, but it was early in or mid 71. And the first question I put down was, what is a microprocessor? Mm. And uh, by the way, they called it at the time a microcomputer, not a microprocessor. They, when the microcomputer came out, it got confusing. And so they changed it to microprocessor. So even the language changed. Uh, and uh, 
and, and that I think what, what you realize with complex technologies is that you have to educate the audience, not promote it because they wouldn't know what to do with it. And that's exactly what ha was happening with the microprocessor. People did not know what to do with it. And what Intel did was come out with a development system that, they, that allowed the user to develop the code because the microprocessor was introducing software into hardware that had never, that wasn't how they did it before. They all hardwired it. So when software came in, it became more complex, but you had, to, you had to educate the audience. And one of the things Intel did was to spend a lot of time and money educating customers. And, uh, and Grove called a meeting. Uh, they, they actually were very successful with the 4004, 4008, 4016. That was the 16-bit microprocessor. And then they were moving to the 32-bit. Motorola had a better microprocessor and we're getting more wins, uh, design wins. So Andy Grove called a meeting of, uh, I think it was eight to 10 people and from the company, different type, different people around the company. And, uh, and, and I was part of that group, even though I wasn't an employee until he asked me if I would join it and I did. And we went away for three or four days to design a strategy, strategy for how Intel could retake their market leadership and that's, that's when it became a real education boom that we distributed throughout and, uh, the, the sales and, and dis distribution organization. We had, uh, they had developed, um, for example, they developed pitches for telecommunications, for um, machine tools, for, I mean, every market you could segment, they were developing education courses on how to apply the microprocessor. And, and the salesmen were given these, given these presentations and or, you know, Noyce and Moore and, and Grove and everybody at the, and Bill Davidow and, and the various other people, they all went on the road selling it that way. Uh, and so, um, you know, within a year, they were back in a leadership position. And, um, you know, Grove was the real driving force there. We had a meeting every Wednesday to review what progress we made. And you didn't go in there without making progress on something. <laughs> that meeting with Grove, um, he kept the time clock on his on the, on the table and uh, you know was uh, set it for you to talk and you had so much time to make your presentation and get out. Um, but uh, Andy, Andy was the driver and, uh, but there were a bunch of other people, really good people. John Doerr, um, I believe was there, a guy named Jim Lally who uh, was also with Kleiner Perkins uh, later, um, was one of the key people. And uh, so that was, a, that was a real sort of uh, staccato point at which things really altered and changed for Intel. The big win was, and through that process, they developed a presentation for IBM. IBM was late into the microcomputer business. So they decided to outsource everything and see if they could do it faster. So they actually uh, uh, went to Intel and or Intel went to them and made a presentation. And what changed was our, our uh, Intel's presentation showed not just a chip, but a system that when we went from eight to 16 to 32 to 64, they could maintain compatibility. Whereas when you changed the processor 
from generation to generation, you had to reprogram everything. You had to restructure your, your circuit layouts. So it saved people money. And the key selling point for the microprocessor became in our crush meetings, not we got a faster chip or a smaller chip or uh, you know more stuff on the chip, but that it improved productivity, it cut development cost, you were able to get the market faster because it was programmable. You could change it in the market so it was infinitely programmable. And so there was it, that pitch was then given to management in these companies. And the management says, yeah, how do you do that? We could cut, cut our time. We could improve our productivity. We could save money. We could get faster to market with products. They want all wanted that. So that's what Intel's real strategy was different than those people on the uh, in Motorola and other places. Oh, I can't hear you. Would you would you argue that that's more engineering driven or more sales and marketing driven? Because in a way, you have to have some kind of chutzpah to get out there and say we're going to take over IBM's uh, computer business. No, you didn't take it off. They were selling it to IBM. I understand. I, I'm just saying that's kind of different thinking, though, from a business perspective, instead of just delivering them chips. Sure, but that was Intel. Mm-hmm. That was Intel. They, they, no, it, it, it actually, um, it was, it was very, very integrated. I mean, as an outside, you know, consult on marketing, I, w- I attended most of the, the the long range technical meetings. They, they were. You worked as a team. We had. I had a team of people who actually worked with the teams of people at Intel. That was true at Apple too. We, yeah. we didn't see ourselves as outside. We saw ourselves as part of their team and they saw us that way. Right. So if you get bright enough people and people who have experience on, on both sides, then you know, you can, you know, ideas can flow and you get different viewpoints and so forth. So no, Intel was very open to that. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, and we got to know them as friends. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the key, probably one of the very, very key founders, um, and people don't know him, is a man named Les Fidesz. And Les, Les had the same kind of background as Grove. Um, and he he was very key in most of the development of their products, including their EPROMs and, and so forth. And uh, he and I have lunch about once a week, or once a month, rather. And he lived not too far from me. And we, you know, he, when he comes down and we, we, we go out, we still, and we talk about these days, I have samples of some of the products that he developed and he didn't have them. So I gave them to him. Uh, I gave him a whole set of, of EPROMs that he was responsible for getting to market. Uh, you know, one thing, Noyce said, you know, success has many fathers and failures an orphan. Uh, 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 and uh, well, that was John F. Kennedy said that, and uh, and of course that that is true. There's many people who claim credit for either Apple or for whatever, but there has to be one person that sort of is the spark and the driver, and uh, and and make sure everybody is on the same page. Intel did a great job of passing the torch to lots of great leaders. Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. Um, I think he owns that entirely himself. <laughs> Yeah, see, I in I've written articles on this, and I at various times I think the CEO is quite frankly the head of marketing. Uh, 
I mean, you know, who's get, who gets fired if the if, if the marketing programs don't work? It's either the head of it's either this the, uh, the chief te- the chief technology model most didn't exist, so it was usually you know the head of the division or the head of the company. The stockholders you know throw them out and so or or somebody the board does. So uh, I think that they have they have uh, the role of integrating the company. And an integrated company where people work as a team, the head of it is the CEO. So he's sort of the master marketing person because you, you can't let stuff out into the world that he hasn't seen or approved. Or, I mean, you, you know, you, and you, you can't lie, for example, in technologies. You, right. you know, you, you would be found out and you'd be thrown out immediately. You, you know, that, uh, and, and so I, I think, um, I, I've written about that, yes. And I also think the CIO then has become more of a marketing person simply because they man, manage the logistics. So they see that your cereal boxes are on the shelf at every store. Imagine, you know, they don't get, they can't, you can't keep a, uh, you know, inventory in a, in a grocery store in the back room. There's just not a big enough room. And now we're, you know, there's something like, you know, a couple hundreds of thousands of now, uh, SKUs that are now on the, you know, available. Well, you know, what, what Amazon solves that by having a lot of affiliates and, and taking it from wherever it's available and delivering it, but they're a logistics company. And, uh, and that's, that's that's the CIO today. Yeah. I think you would add data to that logistics piece today too, right? The most, he who is the most data knows how to effectively manage to that uh, as a competitive advantage. Yeah, I mean, in the 70s, I had a company called Spectrophysics and they, they developed the first commercial lasers. And those com- were low power commercial lasers that were the ones that went into the supermarket checkouts. That was in the 70s. So it could read, all this works as a, as a I would call it, it's called a Rubik's cube. It's not just one piece. It's not just Intel. It's not just Apple. It's not just you know the the, the people who create the the checkout counters and the registers and all those kind of things. It's a Kubrick's cube that you have to learn all the pieces and all the interactions and how they work, and it's and it's very very complex. And now you got data transferring among those pieces, yeah. those various pieces at, at billions of a second. Yeah. Um. Tell me quickly about uh, Intel Inside. That was another um, amazing milestone. Um, it's in all the marketing uh, <laughs> uh, books. And yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I had, uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in on that. I had left Intel right in, yeah. but uh, or it's a client. But I wasn't for it. Yeah, and, and and the reason, the reason I wasn't, wasn't because I didn't do it. It was because. Uh, it 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 uh, commoditized uh, microcomputers, so that when you went into a store, uh, a computer store to buy a computer, every computer had Intel inside in it. So now you say to yourself, "What's the difference?" Right. <laughs> What's the difference between you? And you know what the difference was? Price. Yeah. yeah. So then you get everybody lowering their price, so they make them they ship stuff more offshore. Yeah. Commoditized, and so. Uh, yeah, I wanted into I wanted Apple to run an ad say Intel not inside. 
Hey, well, as long as you bring it up, we can pivot to the 1984 commercial, which I know you were a part of that discussion. I mean, that was another thing. Like, that's just different thinking. That's next level. Um, that's chess when people are playing checkers, right? Yeah. You know, uh, um, I think that ad, I, I wasn't really behind that as a, as a, as a marketing tool. But what it did was it, it lifted the, the kind of the morale of the people at Intel. And that's what, that's what he did with this, the second ad that he did. The, uh, you know, all of the-, the, the Think different. Uh, yeah, think differently. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, these were things that I think Steve and himself wanted to get kind of the core people at Apple to see and, and begin to see, you know, we're back. And, uh, but, the reason, again, if you if you think logically, it, IBM owned about eighty to ninety percent of the personal computer market, and that ad basically said, IBM is making a, you know um, an automaton out of you, and uh, and you you're doing it without thinking. It kind of pissed off all their customers, because <laughs> Apple was, was after the business community, and they couldn't get into it. They were selling the schools, they were selling the hobbyists, they were selling everybody, but they had a very hard time selling into uh, businesses at that time. Right. And so uh, from a business standpoint, you know, but, you know, uh, I, and I also have a motto that's older than Apple that I, out of one of my old collections was um, the, the ad won all the awards, but the company went bankrupt. Um, so, you know, the ad was admired, it still is today. It's just, they claim it was the best ad ever. But if you look at Apple, um, the, um, for the next literally four or five years, and I could probably show you the chart, their earnings dropped, their margins dropped considerably. Uh, they, Steve left. I mean, so, uh, you know, the company, it, it didn't have a long-term effect into that, but the ad again, won all the awards. So. I'm, you know, and I did a lot of advertising. Uh, you know, he, he did the, uh, he was a very good friend of mine and, uh, and he bought my agency. I had a, I had an ad agency up until 1981 and Jay and I, um, he, he was also, when I was at National, he was my ad agency. So I knew Jay pretty well, but he had become sort of a, a, a kind of the hero of the advertising world because he was so creative and unique. And, uh, and a very smart guy. Yep. And so uh, when I wanted to get out of that business, I just, Jay and I just met, we actually met in the LA airport accidentally and, and we talked about it. And, and I said, sure, let's do it. So we did it, we, we closed the deal at the, uh, at the uh, Plaza Hotel in New York at the Oak Room on a Friday the 13th. Classic, that's just classic, I love it. I'm a huge fan of O&M back in the day. Shiat Day was amazing too. Uh, what, 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 yeah. your, your business was amazing too. Your people were amazing. I, I really tip my cap. I love the way you explain public relations from the standpoint of, you know, it has such a different meaning to different groups, uh, you know, across different industries, but you were a strategic advisor. You were a coach, a mentor, to people like Steve Jobs. I mean, you had, you had dozens and dozens of clients who, who you had a similar role with. That's not common. 
No, no. And in fact, you know, honestly, I didn't like PR. I didn't like advertising, you know, very much. It's not. Um, and, you know, for that reason, because you're, you're always caught between what the client thinks you should do and, and, and what you think uh, it should be done. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I had clients that would take it home or an English degree and they would say, oh, my wife doesn't like this and, you know, and so forth and so on. So, you, you know, you're constantly in a battle and, um, and I can tell you a little story on, on Intel if you want. Uh, we, we, uh, we, when, when the crush thing came on, we decided to do something completely, completely different. And again, this was a reference from Jay Chiat because he had been using a fellow, an artist by the name of Pat Nagel. And I don't know if you know Pat Nagel's artwork. Um, he, he was, he was. Uh, yeah, the Nagels became famous for that period of time. He was, a, was kind of that mauve kind of colors in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, we hired him to, to do illustrations for the ads. And, uh, and the ads again uh, were, were very popular. Uh, the, uh, the, but the engineers hated them. You know, the engineers want to see a, you know, a spec sheet. They want to see how fast it is and how, you know, all, all those kind of things. And so there was a lot of grumbling at, uh, at Intel over them. Um, some of the people really liked them. The marketing VP really liked it. And my friend, uh, Les Fidesz, who was uh, one of the key engineers, he liked them a lot. Uh, but um, uh, Grove stopped me in the parking lot one time and he said, you know, it would be really cheaper for, for me to fire you. And I said, why? And he said, uh, because everybody's stopping in, the, in their work to talk about those ads. <laughs> and I said, well, well, isn't that what you want? <laughs> I think, <laughs> so, you know, Andy and I, he, you know, he was tough, but he and I had a nice, you know, he, he was, was very, very, we even went on a, him and his wife and me and another, and the sales manager went on a, a you know, vacation to, to Europe together and so forth. I mean, he he's, he's he was a very smart, good person. And uh, uh, but anyway, uh, about five or ten years later, I get a call from somebody from Intel, and they said, uh, "Do you remember those Pat Nagel ads?" I said, "Yeah." They said, uh, "Do you have them? Do you have the originals?" And I said, "No, no, no. You know, they were passed on to Jay Shiat when I sold the business." And they said, I said, why? And they said, well, one of the executives or board members or whatever was at an art show and his art, his, uh, his art is selling for tens of thousands of dollars. So we want to get it all back. <laughs> this, is, this is years afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I don't know if they got it all back. You know, I pointed them in some direction. I think they got all but a few pieces back. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was really unique uh, campaign. That's funny. I'll tell you a quick story now, too. Uh, what got me into tech journalism was Steve Wozniak. Um, I was uh, a, a music journalist. Like, if you remember the movie Almost Famous, I was that kid following the bands all around town in Southern California. And I was writing about music. And all of a sudden, this guy, Steve Wozniak, comes down, who I remember seeing on the cover of, I think it was Newsweek back then, um, you might have had a, a hand in that, but he was putting on this thing called the Us Festival. You remember that? Yeah. So that was yeah. the big music festival. So I went out and interviewed him 
I ended up spending about three hours in an afternoon with Steve talking about all kinds of things, like the craziest stuff. And you know all about his, his personality and how he loves to get into the detail of, you know, gadgets and widgets and, you know, his, his early hacks and his early tech and some visionary stuff. I don't even know where the afternoon went. He asked me to come back up and visit him up north after the concert. He sent me some tickets to the show. I went to the US Festival, you know, that nothing much became of that, but I had a blast. I went up to talk to him. He took me all around Apple. Um, I got to meet a whole bunch of people. The next thing I know, I'm applying to all these tech trade journals to become a journalist in the tech industry. And uh, I, I landed a job at CRN and the rest is, is kind of history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's rather, again, he's a unique, well, there's, there, there's a lot of people like that around the Valley. I mean, even in back in the old days, so there was at, at, uh, at Fairchild, there was, and then he went to national, it was a fellow by the name of Bob Weidler, who became, he, he probably designed most of the, the chips that, uh, that made Fairchild successful. Uh, and, and about probably 70% of the chips that made national successful. He was a designer, but he was a little crazy. Um, and, uh, there was a lot of that. He, he, you know, and, uh, yeah, he kept an ax in his office and, and, uh, had a big wild beard and had, had, had a place in Mexico. Uh, uh, this is a, kind of a funny story, but he, he, when he son retired, he was, he had a place down in, I think, Puerto Vallarta and he would drive down to Mexico and drive back. And, and the customs people kept seeing this guy that would go back and forth. And they wondered what the, what's he doing? Going, coming back and forth. So he couldn't explain to them that he was going up, he was doing some consulting and that sort of thing. And so, and Bob and I knew each other fairly well. You know, we, I used to talk to him all the time and, and um, he used to beat me up all the time. And uh, uh, he said, uh, we, I got to do something. I need something to prove that I have a job. And so we sat down and we came up with this thing that it was a business card and uh, it said, uh, uh, Bob Weidler, and under his title was Highwayman. And it was Morgan and Associates, which was the, the old, you know, bank robbers and highwaymen from the, you know, back in the, in the, in the uh, wild days of the West. And, and so we, we printed it for him. I, we had embossed and everything. And he gave it to the board and he came up and he said to me, he said, you know, he said, they think I'm, I prepare roads. <laughs> so he, he said, you know, they couldn't figure out what it was when he said highwayman. Well, he said, I, they, they now said I had an occupation. So uh, they let him through all the time. A lot of, lot of rascals, a lot of characters, a lot of creativity and intelligence mixed in. Hey, Regis, I'm, yeah. taking, I'm taking a bunch of your time. I really enjoy this talk. Um, but let me ask you this. So let's say... Um, you were entering the workforce today with the same kind of background, you know, coming out of uh, school in Pittsburgh, I think, um, and, you know, the same kind of energies, but in a different environment today, right? We have all this tech out there and, you know, all this stuff going on in the metaverse, going on in society. Um, where does where does a Regis McKenna look to go today? Do you start a marketing firm? Do you get into advertising? Are you interested in tech still? Oh, very much. I'm on the board of several tech companies. Yeah, very, very techy companies. Yeah. Uh, uh, one called 
one called Stream, S-T-R-I-I-M. They do streaming data, you know, billions, billions of bytes per second and, and um, or bits per second, and they do analytics on it while it's streaming. So by the time, you know, it gets there, it's there. <laughs> so would, the you, would you, would you, would you, know, you, know, you say when, uh, I've been in, I've been in the business 60 years. So you learn something. I mean, if you, unless you're really no, but what, would you, would you want to, would you, would you end up starting your own tech company as opposed to starting a marketing agency or would you veer into something completely different if you were to start your career, um, you know, out of, out of school today? No, I, I, um, I, I actually did a few things. One is, um, um, my, my son and I started about 15 years ago, our own invest venture fund. And, uh, you know, and so I, we invest in tech companies. Uh, we don't, we stopped the investments because, um, you know, we just, it was long enough and it, and it's, and it's hard work. Um, we travel a lot, um, and I, I'm doing a lot of writing. I've written a lot of articles and and um, and things of that nature. Right, um, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, and I do a lot of side invest uh, consult consulting to people. You know that ask me. Um, you know, people say, "Can you sit down with so and so?" And I do actually. Strangely enough, I get a lot of, uh, of my friends uh, having their their children or grandchildren ask me for career advice. And so we'll have lunch and, and that sort of thing. Uh, it's just, it's just that you bring some experience to it and, um, and, uh, and variety. I think that today though, I mean, you, the, the key thing is your education. And I think if I were to go back, um, I took a couple courses in physics and I really loved them. Um, I had one in, in graduate school called speculative physics, and that was probably the, the, the best simply because the teacher was so, so good. Uh, I think math is really important because today that's how you assemble algorithms for doing everything. Um, uh, and I have a, my daughter married a, a person who's a math major and, and uh, has a master's in it. And he's also now on a company doing that. And uh, so I, I think that uh, having a, a background in the sciences, having an information technology, it's worth some kind of code. Apple likes to see people learn code, even in school. The, you know, Tim Cook thinks that everybody should have a class in code uh, because it's going to be the language of the future. Um, so I, you know, I think that you, um, it's very hard to make the decisions. I mean, I literally went to college to play football believe it or not, at a small college. And, and, and I probably wouldn't have gone to college if it wasn't for that because nobody else in, you know, ahead of me went to a private college. You and Bill and, Campbell uh, on, that, on that page, right? Oh, Bill and I are we're very close friends, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Bill's no longer with us. So, um, and he's another one that we used to have, you know, we would have our, our quarterly dinners and and talk about old times and oh uh, man would i have liked to have been a fly on the wall or a seat in the back there well there's another fellow out here named sam kalala who was uh in a venture capitalist and some sam would join us and sam actually played on teams that competed with bill paid for homestead and sam played for a high school called i think it was uh, uh well i don't remember the name of it but it was it was in pittsburgh 
Yeah. And uh, and I would watch those two tell lies about their careers. <laughs> <laughs> and Bill always accused him of being three years behind. That's why it was so good. He played, I uh, actually played quarterback for the University of Pittsburgh for a while. And uh, and Bill Campbell used to say, "Well, you were you were five years older, four years older than everybody else because you've been in, couldn't get through school, you know." And so they would, and so we had a lot. It was a good time. We, that is a, a great time. group. Yeah. yeah. Well, Regis, um, I can't thank you enough for spending a little time and sharing some stories. Uh, I love what you're doing now. I thought what you were doing uh, when we were both uh, practitioners in our media worlds that was fantastic and. Uh, just thanks. Thank you for, for sharing some thoughts and uh, stories with us. So where can I find your podcast? Oh, I'll, drop, your, you, uh, I'll, I'll drop you a link and uh, um, a note as well, if I can. Um, I actually um, do follow up and send a, um, a, a link, but it's published on Spotify or Apple. You might prefer Apple. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's great. Well, it's nice to meet you and uh, a nice conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope it. you got what you wanted. You know what? Um, <laughs> Maybe more. But yeah, but yeah, but but all of that is part of what the look back is about. We try to share some stories a little bit forward, a little bit backwards with some people that, you know, help write the book, help write the stories. Yeah, I'll, I'll just let me, let me, let me just, let me just give you, I'll give you two quotes. Okay. One was a French poet uh, who said the future isn't what it used to be. <laughs> and that says something about the past. Yeah. And Steve Jobs uh, on a phone one time after he got back to Apple and they had gotten their, you know, market share increased everything else. And he used to call me fairly, you know, fairly periodically, but we would talk on the phone. And he, and he said to me, you know, funny how things turned out. So if you think about it, you know, he was he was pushing ahead on things, but was never quite certain what the future was going to hold. And 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 he himself was surprised by where they have gotten. And I think that's 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 a good message because you can't expect something of the future that you don't have the infrastructure or the tools to make happen. When he went back to Apple. Uh, it was different than the first time because the second time he had the internet, he had graphics engines, he had touch screen, yeah. he had processors that were really powerful. So, I mean, all those tools now he recognized were there. He was able to assemble them into the iPhone and the iPad and those kinds of things. Uh, and then they, and they, and they kept the core technologies and then they started producing their own. But um and he said they look. They try to develop springtime technologies, which I love that term. Mm. And that is not technologies that have been around a long time, not ones that aren't there yet, but ones that are on the rise. And spotting them's hard. So, uh, you know, the future and the past are very closely linked. A friend of mine, I did a lot of work in the retail industry, both with my media days and subsequent. And the people that I talked to, we would talk in the technology world about time to market, how fast we could bring something out, right? To be innovative, to be a leader. And they would talk about time to mass. Obviously, the, the same as the springtime analogy, I think, because yeah. you're not looking to bring something out to market and develop a market. You want to bring it to market 
where it can get adopted quickly and, and everybody can uh, profit from uh, that. Uh, what, what I use I use the term uh, uh, time to acceptance mm. because half of all new products fail, even in the in the in the that's all in the tech world, huh? That's all. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. I mean, because they they bring them out and you don't know what the markets. This is I think what Steve is saying. You know, he's uh, he was unsure about the iPhone first coming out. Would people accept it, or would the iPad, or other things? But you know, uh, so but when people accept things, and that's that's really the assurance that you're doing something right. I like it. Time to acceptance. That's good. Good, Keith. Good luck to you. Pleasure, Regis. Thank you for for your time again. All right. Take care. All right, be good. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support, welcome any feedback, and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.